chapter 22, and it's from the NIV, and it's the whole chapter. So here we go. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan, along with their fellow Israelites. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Jeliloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Jeliloth near the Jordan on the Israelites' side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family, head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves, other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan's son of Zerah was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows, and let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. 
That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad and Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Morning, everyone. A couple of announcements just quickly before we begin. There's a baptismal service tonight. For some of you will know Tom Ford, a young guy who's going to declare his faith publicly uh, and be obedient to the command of the Lord Jesus about being baptised. So that's tonight if you would like to either come along or to remember him. Did we have slides up about the announcements? No? Here is the test then. On the 28th of... August, the last Sunday in August, it's a special service. It's not a 10.30 service, and there's not an 8.45 service, there is a 9.30 service. Here we go, watch this. This is next Sunday, as newcomers. If you've never been to a morning tea, a special morning tea for newcomers, then come along to that, 10 o'clock, and then turn up here for church. Before we have our anniversary service, we're going to have one of these. And there are forms at the back this morning. Yes what everybody is looking forward to. There is a, a list of jobs and occupation uh, things to do and you can sign on down there if you'd like to come. It's a great time of fellowship. Last Saturday in August, combined service, 9.30, up in the auditorium. All four services together to remember our 54th anniversary, tonight's baptism with Thomas, if you'd like to come along to that. I think that might be it, is it? Yep, done. Kill. Thank you. Um, and in the bulletin you'll also notice there's a mention of two people, both Daniel Kivers and also a young lady by the name of Rianne Contessi. Um, Daniel, with a few other mates, is going to go on a, a World Vision extreme 40-hour famine. So they're doing not just the diet thing, they're doing a whole denial of other things as well. Um, so you can read about that and support them in it. But Rianne also, there's a paragraph in the bulletin about her. She, uh, in response to the famine in East Africa, 
has felt moved that uh, she's got a beautiful head of dark flowing locks. She's going to get them all shaved off. So she's looking for people to sponsor her. She's looking, trying to raise $2,000, and I think she's up to about 1000 Last I heard, she was up to 800 Yeah. Well, she can wear a cap tomorrow night then. I don't know if it was next weekend or this weekend. It's coming. She's cutting it off. That's excellent. So you might um, think about and being able to support her in a pretty worthy cause. Nola Hodgson, whom some of you will know, it's her birthday today. She's 92. Pastor David is away, as Phil has mentioned, at the um, BLT. Uh, Sharon is still in the process of recovery, still a bit of a mystery. Um, and we've been praying for uh, some young, younger people, both Joelle, a young girl, four, who has cancer in the liver, continue to pray for her. The treatment is ongoing, but is, I think, doing well. Sianna, a little baby, five weeks old, now six weeks old, had an operation on a hole in the heart. She has uh, several other operations in front of her, but she's home and recovering and doing well. Pastor Alvin and Cherry, his wife, have both had operations in the last couple of weeks, so they're both home sick and recovering as well. Rhonda's not with me today. She's got the flu. don't know what she's got, but she's perpetually cold and she can't get warm. We might pray for her. And um, Micah, you may have got an email about this just in the last couple of days. Micah is a 13-year-old boy, the grandson for Graham and Liz Anderson. And Micah has some disease, some issue, which... Uh, basically causes his body to shut down and he collapses and he ends up in hospital and his white blood cell count goes through the roof. I think uh, last time it was like 250, 260 or something and it's hitting regions of where it's fatal. So he's not expected to survive this. It will eventually take his life. There is no cure and they can't identify it really. Uh, It's a bit of a mystery to the medical profession. So pray for Micah, 13-year-old boy, Christian family. He was in hospital at uh, Nambour and there was a four-year-old girl who has the same issue and she passed away. So it's an awful thing. Uh, so pray for the family, Micah, his mum and dad, as well as Graham and Liz and other members of the family. Cold Hood, whom some of you will know, has been in and is out of hospital and is home recovering. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are present with us. You've heard all of the names and the issues that I've just mentioned and we submit, Lord, them to you, asking that you might intervene, that you might strengthen, heal, provide, that you might use people to extend the influence of your kingdom in this world. And, Lord, to that end, we pray for ourselves now as we get the opportunity to listen. We ask and desire your spirit to nudge us, to speak to us, that we might be uh, prompted to align ourselves with your purposes and with your will. So, Lord, speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. And everybody said, Amen. The greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's the number one thing, the number one issue. The reason God made us, put us in this world, know him, love him, serve him. But of course sin came into this world and we got out of step with God. But that's still the greatest commandment and that's still the purpose for which God made us. Jesus in fact clarifies it or uh, raises the bar if you like 
by clarifying it when he says we are to love God first, preeminently. He's to be prominent, numero uno, number one in our life. And uh, in fact, you, if you love anybody, father, mother, brother, sister, wife, if you love anybody more than you love God, then you're not worthy of following Jesus, he says. That's pretty stark language, isn't it? And what, of course, he is emphasising, God teaches us that we are to love people, we are to respect and honour our parents and love our wives and brothers and sisters, of course. He's not saying to not love them, but he is saying God's to be number one. He's to be more important than everybody else and anything else. And occasionally that's a good reminder to us. Well, in this chapter of Joshua... I think that's the primary message of what the author of the book of Joshua is trying to remind us about. That as we come to follow God and his purposes and ways, he calls us to be completely committed to him. Not to compromise, not to coast, not to become comfortable. And all of that's very easy. In fact, that's the natural tendency. The natural tendency is to simply drift off course. Effort is required to maintain passion, focus and obedience. Um... In the book of Romans, and Joshua is structured in a similar way, the book of Romans begins with an argument from the Apostle Paul. He outlines theologically how God made us, we sinned, Jesus came, uh, God has worked in our lives and now he's redeemed us. So God has been very merciful to us. And chapter 12, verse 1 begins, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, in view of all that he has done for us, we ought to commit ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. That's the appropriate response to make to what God has done on our behalf. Well, it's exactly the same here in Joshua. In the first 21 chapters of Joshua, you get this demonstration of God calling Israel, using Israel to achieve his purposes. He leads them into the land. They are victorious. They obey God's will. They divide the land up. And now the battle is finished. Now, therefore... Having achieved all that God has uh, done in us and through us and for us, the only appropriate response, chapter 22, be committed to him. Have a look at verse 5. When Joshua is sending them home, he says to these two and a half tribes, take care to observe the commandment and the instructions that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. That's the response to make. And Joshua admonishes these groups before he dismisses them and sends them back. You see, in the midst of war, in the midst of difficulty, that sometimes with that external pressure can be easy to focus upon God. And these guys had been through seven years of fighting together, seven years of uh, sharing campsites and entering to battle, saving each other, encouraging, protecting each other, battling together. They had formed a bond. As you often see demonstrated even in our world where people like at Anzac Day, where veterans get together, there's a, there's a memory, there's a story to be told or to be remembered. There is a comradeship which is easily reconnected. That happens for veterans. And in most of these guys... Well, the two world wars didn't go for as long as this campaign that Joshua was involved with. This is seven years of fighting, which has now come to an end. And it's easier, doesn't sound it, but it's easier to focus on God and be obedient to him in the midst of the hard times. That's easier comparatively than it is to maintain the same level of passion and intensity in the good times. 
we have a tendency to drift. And the hard times remind us, call us back. The easy times, we just continue to drift. And this passage addresses part of a solution to that. So Joshua's word to them is, okay, the battle's done, God's been good, stay focused on him. Don't drift in the times of peace. And so he sends the tribes off. Um, And as they're wandering home, they're heading back east, back across the Jordan River, back to the other side where they've got land, their families and kids and uh, others waiting for them. So there would have been a sense of relief, a sense of it's good for the fighting to be over, we're going home. They would have looked forward to that. It would have been a sense of sadness and leaving their comrades and mates whom they won't see as regularly or for a while. And on the way home it occurs to them, which is a good concern, what's the future going to be like for us? And they are concerned that not them, but their next generation, their children and their grandchildren and the future generations may drift, they may forget. And they are in fact are fearful of the next generation of the Israelites. Will they ostracise us? You see, if you jump in your Bible, if you've got one with you, uh, or put on the screen, down to verse 24 and following, when they come to explain why they built the altar, they say, we did it for fear that in time to come, your children, next descendants, might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? What have you got to do with us? You live on that side of the Jordan. You don't know us. You're not like us. And so they're on the way home and this concern is prominent in their mind and they have a solution. Their idea is that they're going to build this massive big altar, a replica of the one altar which is in Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle of God was. There is one altar, one faith, one people. There can only be one altar, just like there is only one cross for us as the Lord Jesus. One altar, but they built another one. God had sent them into the promised land to destroy all altars in the land, get rid of all of the idols and all of the false gods and have one altar at one place, at one location. They somehow, that penny hadn't dropped, so they built another altar, not a functioning altar, not one where they would you know, be sacrificing animals on it or things like that, but simply a memorial. Just like Joshua at various places through the book had built pile of stones and it was a memorial to remind them of something. This is now the eighth memorial. So they build this massive great altar just before the Jordan and it's a replica. So that in future, they anticipate, when the future generations say, what have you got to do with us? They'll say, look at that. That altar is a replica of that altar and we copied it because we belong to you. That was their thinking. It's not great thinking, but it's driven by good motives. They're trying to say we belong, we want to stay part of. We have a tendency to drift, you see, and we sometimes get off course and we come up with what we think are helpful ideas but can turn out to be dumb ideas. We still have that tendency today where people want to build something, make something, wear something which is external, which demonstrates I belong to God. People can then... What starts as a helpful idea can drift into simply becoming a religious relic and, in fact, can become false advertising. What do we do today in our society of that same attitude of where we take something physical, tangible, which indicates I belong to Jesus, I belong to God? Think of anything? There's lots of them. Some people wear a little cross around their neck. Does that mean they belong to Jesus? Well, at one stage I guess it did, but these days it doesn't. It's just jewellery, isn't it? 
Hello? It is for many people. You'll find lots of young people wearing crosses. They don't know what it means. Um, What else do we do? Some people have wristbands, has four letters on them. What are those letters again? There you go, you know. Some people wear little badges or things. Some people have bumper stickers on their car. I don't put a bumper sticker on my car. I think I've told you this story before. Very first car Rhonda and I ever bought together, we had a fish and we thought, that'd be great, we'll put a fish on the back windscreen. So we did. And when we had it for about five years, when we came to sell it, we couldn't get the thing off. So we sold this car and it's got a fish on it and somebody else has bought it. So the only thing that a Christian sticker on a car can tell you is that the car is converted, not the driver. (laughs) These things don't work. They've got a good motive behind it that starts out well. That's where the rosary bead came from. It started well to teach people who were illiterate the discipline of prayer and to help them guide it through. But that which started helpfully suddenly became an empty religious experience. We have a tendency to drift. And these Israelites returning home, concerned about their future and the future generation, their kids and their kids' kids, thought, know what to do, we'll build an altar. Well, if you have a look at verse 11 and 12... The Israelites, who were mates of these guys, had fought together for seven years. They'd gone home. These guys had probably started to go home. Um, Then the Israelites on this side heard that the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that they had built an altar. There can only be one altar. When they had heard that they had built an altar, they were furious. They gathered together. They returned to Shiloh where they had split up from, the whole assembly of the Israelites in verse 12, and they came with the intention to make war. We're going to gather together and we're going to attack them and we're going to destroy them. Now, what's the point of this? It sounds awful to our ears in our world. Is this just another illustration of how religions provoke war? No, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is this. These people, these nine and a half tribes of Israel were so committed, so focused, so obedient to doing what God wanted them to do that even when their close friends, their comrades in arms did what they thought was defiance or disobedience or abandonment, apostasy, whatever word you like, when they had done the wrong thing, they were prepared to sever them. They were prepared to pay the consequences. So the passage is really talking about being zealous for God and the honour of his name, even when that's against people that we love and care for. God first. He must come first if we're going to live lives that are pleasing to him. That's what drove the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, he says, I make it my ambition to please him. What's your ambition? We all have ambitions. Ambitions can be good. Ambitions for careers or ambitions for relationships or ambitions for holidays or possessions. The number one ambition needs to be, my ambition is to be pleasing to him. In my career, pleasing to him. In my holidays, pleasing to him. So these guys were doing that. They gathered together and they were prepared to be obedient to what God had told them to do, to remove all other altars, to remove all false gods, And now some of their closest friends had turned around and done what they thought 
was to abandon God. When they gather together, verse 13 and following, the Israelites at least do something very sensible. They're in obedience to what God says to do in the book of Deuteronomy, that when there is a conflict like that, the priest and a delegation are to go and to examine on the basis of two or three witnesses. Before there is an execution, there has to be a substantiation of the facts. So off goes Phineas and he meets with them. They don't pull any punches. In verse 16, he calls it what it is. That's a helpful lesson for us. In the midst of us being very clear about obeying God, we need to speak the truth very clearly with one another. Call it what it is. They say, this is what concerns us. You've rebelled. You've broken away. You've trespassed. You have, uh, you're not following what God wants you to do. They cite a couple of historical examples which both have in common that one person does something but a whole bunch of people get punished for it. Like Achan, when he sinned individually, he did something wrong, but 36 people died, and then when he got found out, he and his family and household, his loved ones, were also punished. The same with that other illustration, Baal of Peor. It's a group of people sinned, but there was a plague broke out against Israel. And the point is this, that we are bound together in covenant when we link with Jesus, and that if one sins, we all suffer. Why? It doesn't sound fair. What sounds fair is if he sins, he suffers. That's his problem. Why is it when he sins or something goes wrong, we suffer? That's not fair, is it? Well, yes, it is. In the economy of God, when an individual does something and it's wrong, then we suffer because we are one body. We are linked That's what's going on here. These nine and a half tribes have to do something about the two and a half tribes because they are one nation. They just can't simply ignore it. Our natural comfortable tendency, our drifting policy is just ignore it, tolerate it, don't worry about it. God will get them. We'll be okay. No, God will get us as well. We have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters to help them stay the course. So the delegation goes... They call it what it is. They express very clearly, listen, we think you've done this, this and this. It's not a good idea. They're even very costly. They say, come and live with us. Leave that side of the land, verse 19. Come and live amongst us. Share our wealth, our land, so that you follow God together. That's costly love being demonstrated. Whatever you do, don't give up on obeying God is the message. And they must have been greatly heartened, this delegation, to hear the two and a half tribes explain what we did was build an altar. Why we did it is what we've already indicated. It is because of our fear of the future. We did it for a good motive. We wanted to demonstrate unity with the people of God. The altar is not about division. It's in fact about a memorial of unity. We belong. We're one of you. It started well, but they could have done it better. It wasn't necessary for them to do it because God had already instituted feasts that they were to attend regularly throughout the year, three of them. Uh, God had instituted families teaching his word, Deuteronomy chapter 6, to the next generation and so on. So it wasn't necessary for them to do that, but they were motivated for good purposes, but their actions weren't helpful and it nearly led to civil war. But there was great relief. The delegation then returns, they give their report and their response to the rest of the tribes and peace continues in Israel. What does all of this mean 
to us? Well, a couple of things. The passage does outline for us uh, how we can handle conflict. When something happens, when somebody does something that um, we don't understand why, but we look at it and we go, that's wrong. We think it's wrong. This passage outlines for us what we need to do is go talk to them. We need to sort it out. We need to express our concerns. We need, as brothers and sisters in the one body, the one kingdom, we need to express clearly what you're doing is wrong. This is harmful, not just for you, but for us as well. And to listen to their reply, to their response, and then to respond accordingly. But the chapter outlines that sort of process for us. And that's helpful, but that's not the main point of the chapter. It's a sidelight, if you like. I think the main point of the chapter is the author of the book is trying to encourage us to be zealous for God, to be committed totally, regardless of the cost or the consequences, faithful to all that God requires of us, to live, as I said, like the Apostle Paul, for God's approval. That's exactly what Jesus did. He gave up all, came into the world, and was fully obedient to his heavenly Father. And we follow Jesus. We are to do exactly the same. God's way, God's will, God's word, above all else. Secondly, I think um, this passage, uh, thirdly, this passage reminds us that when we follow God, we don't do so just as individuals, but we do so as members of a community. And that brings with it certain responsibilities. This is God's will and intention. We are not saved by Jesus just alone. We know the truth that we can't do it by ourselves. We need others around us supporting us, training us, encouraging us and so on. When you become a Christian, you may very well do that by yourself. And then you'll be taught to read your Bible and to pray. And you can do that by yourself. But before very long... The Spirit of God will be moving you and others will be teaching you that you need to be in fellowship with other believers in a church but also in a small group, Bible study group or life group and that there are other things for you to learn about giving and about mission and about witnessing and as you grow as a follower of Jesus, you do that with other brothers and sisters. There is a community dimension. This passage reminds us about that community dimension. And as a member of God's community, there brings with it a responsibility that I am to be passionately following him. And when I see or become aware that somebody else in my community isn't, then I have a responsibility to my brother or sister. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, we are. We are to go after each other, to support each other, challenge each other, encourage each other. All of these things because it pleases him. This is what God intends for us. So that's a question worth considering. Am I a member of God's community? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says, as followers of Jesus, that we are all members of God's family and we belong in God's household. That believers who follow Jesus are members of God's family. This is God's family. And they belong in God's household. This verse reminds us, like this chapter, that believers in Jesus, uh, the church is a family. That secondly, believers in Jesus are to belong to God's family, to belong in the church. And thirdly, a Christian, a believer, 
who doesn't belong in the family is a contradiction in terms. There's something not right. It's either it's strange circumstances or situations or it's a temporary situation. But the norm is that we are committed to, bound to and part of God's covenant community. In our church that means membership or partnership, belonging. Um, And so that's worth thinking about. Am I being fully obedient to God in that area? So chapter outlines for us how to deal with conflict. Chapter reminds us that we are to be zealous for God. And the chapter reminds us, illustrates for us, that in our zeal for God, our passion for him, we do that with others together as we journey together. Let me pray for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who uh, sent your son, the Lord Jesus, into our world, who gave up all to be fully obedient to your will, who was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And because he obeyed you, pleased you, you were pleased to raise him from the dead where he is now rewarded at your right hand and you call us to follow him. Lord, thank you for the reminder and we pray that you might assist us that as we follow Jesus, we might be like him, zealous for your will, not... um, arrogant or harsh, but definitely, Lord, committed and clear. And not just for ourselves, but with one another as well. So, Lord, bless us and help us to be your family, your healthy family, together as we seek to please you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.